You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. In Central Valley, California, it's an area about half the size of Ireland. But in that area, it produces about 50% of the food eaten in the United States of America. So that's what 300 plus million people provided for in half the island of Ireland. In that area, though, it produces so much, they grow 90% of the state's lettuce, 99% of all the grapes, 90% of the nuts like almonds and pistachios, 50% of the world's tomatoes, and 80% of the citrus fruits. It's no wonder that the Central Valley has been coined the term the breadbasket of America, because the conditions are so good, the soil is so good. And while Israel... They're supposed to be living in the land of milk and honey in these chapters. And that is where they go. It's supposed to be a place of immense blessing. Where they were dependent on God in the wilderness for food. Now they're able to work the land and provide for themselves. It's supposed to be a land of milk and honey. A rich, luscious land for them. But as we journey into this land this evening, we need to remember God's promise to Abraham as well. So you remember God's promise included people. There is lots of people now leaving Pharaoh's grasp. But there was no land. But here we get to the land. But in all of this and in Genesis' promise to Abraham, the idea of blessing and cursing, Deuteronomy says that it warns the people, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, you shall perish. In other words, if the people of Israel disobey God, ignore God, worship other gods, they will be cursed. And we'll see that as you read through these books of the Bible. But what is it that we are to look out for as we read this? And it's also what we can apply to our own lives. It is faithful obedience. But on the other hand, it's disobedience. Okay, So it's faithful obedience, what we need to look out for. And the first place where we need to watch out in faithful obedience is in our homes. Whenever Sarah and I got married, we got many wedding gifts. And well, I can actually show you here at home. And it was this. It's a house-shaped ornament. And it has on one of the window panes this, these verses. Or this verse. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And maybe you have that up in your home too. That's in Joshua 24, 15. But can that be said of your house? Do we seriously expect our children to serve the Lord if we do not read the Bible and pray with them? Are we serving the Lord when we're fighting for time to watch our favourite thing or go to your favourite place? Are you just hoping that your children fall into faith? Yes, of course, there's the role of God's Spirit, but it does not neglect the responsibility of parents to instruct your children. Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, they do a really important work, but they do not replace parents. We hand off our children for education, which is wise. Maybe we're doing more of that at home at the moment, but we don't hand off our children when it comes to spiritual life. Priority in the home is serving the Lord. And that looks like teaching our children. Maybe you need help in that and well we are more than willing and want 
to help you do that. But what are you doing in your home so that you can say that verse up in your home perhaps, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. D.A. Carson is a theologian and he has this quote, and this quote I think actually we see even in scripture uh, come to life. That's what he says. One generation believes something, the next assumes it, and the third they deny and forget it. So what's he saying? He's saying the first generation they believe in Jesus, the next they just assume it, and the third they deny it. And we actually maybe see that even in our land today, but we see it in scripture, but maybe we even see it in our own congregations of Union Road and the Comfort. Is there a generation in our church that do all the work? Maybe it's you or maybe it's your parents. They're doing all the work. They run after. They make sure the church runs well. They do all the serving. They run about looking after their children because they want to. They want to serve them and love them well and love Jesus by doing it. And that's why they run after their children. And now that's the next generation, isn't it? And maybe they're just ticking along. It's almost as if they're on the coattails with their parents. They're doing all the serving and they're just drifting along. You could say that they're assuming the gospel. And what does D.A. Carson warn about the children's children? You see that? It's heartbreaking. The third might forget and deny it. Are you in your house really serving the Lord? And parents and couples hang this wall, this verse up on their wall at home. We're proclaiming what Joshua is proclaiming. There's a responsibility in our home to honour God and to exclude activities that does not honour him. Just as the people of Israel rededicate, rededicate their lives to God, maybe we need to do the same. To check our hearts, to check the activities that go on in our home. The example that I set and you set to our family what your family is watching and listening to and reading and watching, a chance to check behaviours and attitudes and that all we say and do. It's a bold proclamation to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's easy to say, but it is incredibly weighty. The people here are confessing in Joshua their willingness to serve the one true God. And Joshua warns them that if they are unable to serve him, God will not forgive them when they stray. See, our sins, although they are many, they will be forgiven when we come to Jesus. But if we deny and reject Jesus, there is no forgiveness for us. And we need to bring up our children, our families, to serve the Lord in our homes. And then secondly, faithful obedience in worship. And we'll come across this as you read Kings and Chronicles especially. There are kings who put up other gods and poles, even in the temple itself. They worship kind of all these other gods and then God a little bit on the side. These kings defile the temple and they still sometimes in their minds thought that they still worshipped God just because he was a wee add-on. We need to be careful even in our own hearts that we aren't serving two masters as it were. That we are faithfully obedient to God because worship is not just sitting down and engaging sometimes or listening sometimes to a sermon and whipping through the rest of the service, fast forwarding it to the good bit, maybe you think. But our worship is to be from the heart. That is what God's desire is. 
So throughout, look out for faithful obedience in the home and in worship, because God looks at the heart. So just now, tonight, we're going to whip through the different books, and we will spend a little bit of time on 2 Samuel 7. And in the book of Joshua, we see there that God fulfills his promise of land. So the book of Joshua, Moses is now dead and there's a, a new leader, Joshua. And you'll remember that all of scripture points to Jesus. Well, how does Joshua point to Jesus? Well, it's quite an easy one actually. Joshua is Yeshua, which in the New Testament is translated Jesus. So if you like, Joshua is like a Jesus. He points forward to Jesus. And what we see here is that Israel need, needs to be faithful to God's word. They need to trust God's word. And we see that in the opening chapters. As they walk round and round Jericho, they are obedient to God's word. But then we come to Ai and there's failure because, well, Achan was disobedient and Achan sinned. And he was cursed because of that. He perished. And then we come to the chapters 14 to 20. And you might think they're really boring. It's just a list of names, you might think. But it's showing that God is fulfilling his promise. It's the distribution of land that shows all that God had said to Abraham is true. The people are there and now the land is there. And then the last chapter, as we've considered just that one verse, it serves as a warning for what is to come. After Joshua and after Joshua dies, we come to the period of Judges. And there we have two books in the period of Judges, Judges and Ruth. In Judges, we see a rebellious people in need of a God-giving king. So each judges aren't judges as in a court, but judges who bring freedom and deliverance. They are saviors. So as Joshua points forward to Jesus, every time we have a leader, whether it's good or bad, they point us to Jesus in a sense. The good ones, the ones that bring freedom, point us to the seed or the offspring to come. Like, could this be the one? And, well, we discover that they're not, but there's that glimmer of hope that they're waiting for a, a final victory over the serpent. But in the opening chapters of Judges, chapters 1 through to th uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, they set out the ideas and, and key things. We begin continuing in the, the promised land. And please turn with me to Judges in chapter 2 and 3. be really helpful. And while well, they didn't drive out, they were disobedient. You'll see there in subtitles, perhaps in your Bible like mine, chapter 2. Israel's disobedient, so it'll bring cursing. But it's verse 11 that kind of sets the tone for the whole book. Verse 11 says, The people of Israel that was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. And that's what happens. And then in chapter 3, 7, right through to end 16 or so, we have what's called the Judges Cycle. An endless cycle of what God's people are in. And many years ago, Andrew Mullen was uh, working in a church and I was listening to their sermon series. And they came up with this cycle. But A, B, C, D, E and F. But let's... Let me show you just looking at God's word. Okay. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 7 we have Othony. It's entitled. Verse 7 says. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you remember that from chapter 2? 
You'll read that time and time again in Judges. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. What do the God's people do? Well, they abandon God, don't they? It's the abandonment of God's people. That's all right. Let's look at the next verse. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, and the people of Israel served Cushan eight years. So what happens next? Well, God's people are put into slavery, aren't they? So that is the bondage of God's people. Next verse. Verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, was our seed? It's the crying of God's people. Okay, let's continue in verse 9. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them off Neil. So we have a deliverer for God's people. That's our day. And then in Judges what we have is often the story how they were delivered. And after that, we see in verse 11 or 8. So the land had rest 40 years. There was a time of rest, of peace. A time of ease for God's people. What's our F? Well, look at verse 12 again. It's filled circle. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the cycle over and over and over again for all the judges, really, uh, apart from Shamgar, who gets a, a sentence. And this Ehud story, it happens again, and you can look at that in your own time, but if you have small boys, maybe they're in bed or not about, read them Ehud, they will laugh and giggle at that story. But all the judges point to Jesus because Jesus will bring final victory over bondage. But these judges... At the end of every judge, as we've discovered, there's a period of ease. Yes? Well, this ease here after Othanil, how long is it? It's 40 years. After Ehud, you'll see it there in verse 30. It's 80 years. What's that? One generation, two generations. So imagine being a, 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 a 10-year-old whenever Othanil comes along. How exciting would that be? You would remember that moment. And what would you do? Your parents would be ever so thankful for that moment. And then 40 years later, what has happened in those 40 years? They haven't been obedient to God again. They've been rescued, but utterly forget them. What was D.A.S. Carson's quote? The first generation believes. The second assumes. The third rejects. We kind of see that pattern in Judges. One or two generations pass, the grandchildren come along and they're no different. That's what happens in the Judges. It's ever so sad. And after the Judges cycle, in the last couple of chapters, it is really sums up how bad Israel has become. In chapter 17 to 20, we have this evil that's happening. It gets more evil as we work through our book until these horrible, grisly chapters of abuse and rape and echoes of Sodom and remember this is God's people Israel it is utterly gruesome and grisly but the last verse of all of Judges points us forward to a little bit of hope of maybe what is to come and it kind of sums up maybe our world today too let me find it last verse in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in their own eyes 
is not achieved today. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes because they have no king of their life. There is no king in Israel. And after Judges, we come to Ruth. And this is in the period of Judges. So even amongst all the evil and faithful disobedience, or faithful obedience not happening, utter disobedience, there's still hope in the midst of it all. Because Ruth, we all know the story so well. We see that the Lord redeems his people. But it does begin with disobedience. They flee from Bethlehem. They marry foreigners. Ruth comes home but is redeemed by Boaz. We all know that story so well. And it ends with the most incredible family line. And Ruth leads us into First and Second Samuel. And again, I'm just going to give you headings, uh, I guess, to look at. First Samuel, really God looks at the heart. That's what we learn there. Men look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And the first seven chapters we have the life of Samuel. And we get a glimpse of Hannah's heart at the very beginning, don't we? And how she wants to, her son, she's blessed one, to serve the Lord. And was not all her prayers. And then we have chapters 8 to 15. Samuel and Saul, if you like. Where we see Saul being warned and eventually rejected. In chapter 16 to 31, we have Saul and David, where we have Saul's fall and David's rise. And 2 Samuel, where we were earlier, is really all about King David. And in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, God establishes his everlasting throne. This chapter 7 is really a key passage in the Old Testament into the New Testament. It's the beginning of this chapter. David wants to build God a house. But God flips it and says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And with all of God's promises and covenants, there is the initial meaning to David. But also the pointing to Jesus and even beyond. See, these promises of the Davidic covenant, we call it, are the culmination of all the promises previously found in Scripture that God has made with his people. This is building up to this moment. It sets the stage for the ultimate fulfilment of his promises in Jesus. And God promises this everlasting throne, which we'll think about in just a moment. But you need to remember in Genesis 15, Abraham is told that he's going to be a king come from his line. Jacob blesses Judah in Genesis 49 and he uses this imagery of a lion with a scepter. That there's going to be a lion of Judah. We all know that, who that is. It is Jesus. But as we look at these verses, just a couple of things I want us to know. Firstly, it is David's throne. Verse 12. I will raise up your offspring after you. God says to David, his son will reign after him. And what God is doing is that in David, in David's family line, God is saying there's going to be a son, an offspring that I'm going to rule all the earth from. An offspring, yes, it means many, like our word sheep, do you remember? There's going to be lots of David's sons, if you like. But it's also pointing to one son that will rule over all things. David's throne will be Jesus' throne. Second thing I want to know in verse 14 is that the king will enjoy a special relationship. I will be to him a father 
and he will be to me a son. In Exodus, Israel is described as a son. There's that special relationship that now is applied to the king. You see, the king kind of is the representative of all the people. If the king is good and obeys God, the people will follow suit. If the king is bad, well, the people will follow suit. And we see that in Kings and Chronicles. This covenant of a father-son relationship is a really special one for the king. And we see that in the Psalms. But although it signifies a really significant moment in history that there's going to be a son set to rule, God sees the kings as a son, but is pointing us forward to the actual son of God. Each king must keep the covenant. Each king will fail, but there's only one king who does keep it. And that is our Lord Jesus. And then in the second half, verse 14 and the 15, we have this idea of discipline. That the kings will be disciplined. But then we have this great hope. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. God will never remove his covenant loyalty from the line of David. Because at times it really looks like God's shoot. Because they're utterly evil and deceitful and not following God. But God does not remove his covenant loyalty. It never departs from David's line. And if it never departs from David's line with all the, the kings, the good and the bad, how much more are we sure that God's covenant love will not be removed from his own son, Jesus, who is perfectly holy and righteous. And then all the promises that we have in Jesus, they are utterly secure. God's covenant love will not depart. Jesus is the ultimate king that will represent his people. What the king is, the people will become. Jesus is holy. We will become just like him. Third thing I want us to know is that it's a forever throne. Verse 13 and 16. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your throne will be established forever. David's throne, it, it lasts 400 years or so. It doesn't seem though David's throne's going to last forever. But like all these things, we are thinking in human terms and not in God's eyes. That's why we started in Luke chapter 1, those words the angel Gabriel said to Mary, that a child has been born to you who's on the throne of his father, David. Jesus is the eternal king from David. Jesus is the one who finally fulfills the covenant God makes. Jesus is the one who was perfect yet took on sin for me and you. It's God's awesome grace working throughout scripture all pointing to Jesus that the rest of the Old Testament looks forward to a king that will come. It's the ultimate promise of a King David. Out of the line full of sinners there will be one fully obedient king. Our Lord Jesus, one who will always be sitting on his eternal throne, reigning and ruling over all things. And we know that none of his citizens, none of his subjects will ever be taken away from him. God's plan to establish a kingdom of redeemed sinners will come to pass. It will happen. But as we've been working through the Old Testament, there's been 
these different covenants that God makes to Abraham, to Moses, and now to David. And well, the Abraham and David covenant there are so similar, yet we get a greater, a richer and deeper understanding of who Jesus will be. That he will be now the eternal king. In Abraham we're told there's going to be a great name, that there'll be many descendants, that there will be a land. David we're told that there'll be a great name, a dynastic succession, there's going to be one to rule for all eternity and there will be land. All pointing us to that eternal offspring, that eternal seed. That will rule from the line of David forever. That is what we're building up to in the Old Testament. Till we see the face of Jesus. And after 2 Samuel we come to Kings and Chronicles. And there we see that God punishes disobedience. But still sustains the Davidic covenant. See after the line of David Solomon becomes king in his reign. But the kingdom will become divided. Ten tribes in the north in the kingdom, called Israel confusingly, will leave and they are utterly evil, do not worship God at all. And then the southern kingdom called Judah, with two tribes, is the tribe of David. He comes from the Lion of Judah. And the kingdom splits because of the disobedience and it brings cursing. Eventually the people end up in exile. But despite it all, there's good kings and there's bad kings. There's Evil kings and good kings. Kings that bring reform. But throughout it all God shows covenant obedience. Because the kingly line of David is not destroyed. At the end of both Chronicles and Kings. Chronicles focuses only on Judah. Kings focus on both kingdoms. But both give us hope. Because if a conquering nation comes and defeats a nation. The first thing they often do is kill the king. Get rid of all his descendants. So there's no claim to the throne. Yet not here. God is concerned with his promise he makes to the line of David. His covenant love will not depart. And the kingly line of David is not destroyed. So for the people in exile there is still hope of a king to come. Tonight we've covered a huge amount of ground from entry to the promised land to their exit again being brought into exile. And throughout we have seen Israel's disobedience to God's word and covenant. But yet, in it all, God does not remove his love from his people. There's still hope in this story of redemptive history, of his story bringing us salvation. Because there's one from David's line that will come to rule and reign. There is hope for us in Jesus. What do we learn here? We learn that Jesus is that eternal forever king that will live forever his promises to us are utterly secure because he is the king. So let us be people who are faithfully obedient to our God in our worship and even in our homes. That we can say with all sincerity, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.